0: Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church Newburn podcast. My name is Paul Scott Chernitsky, and I am one of your hosts. I am joined again by Anna. Hey, Anna.
1: Hey, Paul Scott.
0: Happy Sunday. It is February 20th. We are here at church in between services, and today is the big Anna interview.
1: It's exciting.
0: Uh, if you're a regular podcast listener, you might remember uh, maybe a couple months ago, a month ago, I interviewed Marin just asking her about where she went to seminary and just stuff about her. So now it's Anna's turn. Bring it. First question. Totally. It just doesn't seem like it would be the first question, but I decided that it should be. When you were little, was there a favorite place that you liked to go?
1: Yes. Um, am I allowed to have two part answers? I'm a preacher. This is yep. Yeah, you yeah. Can
0: have a twelve. What, today's sermon was like a multi part answer it was, too. Yes.
1: So this is this fits the theme. Well, I would say my favorite place to visit would be my grandparents' home. Um, they lived in Aiken, South Carolina, and they had this house that with all these woods in the back, and there were dormers and cozy spaces, and it was just kind of magical. I loved visiting there. It was just a wonderful, just felt right and and this will be a dorky answer but this is so true to me. I loved getting lost in a book. So if there was a place I could go, I read a ton when I was little and I loved so if I, a place i loved love to go would be I loved getting lost in a book.
0: Can you still go back to those woods in a- Aiken?
1: Aiken? No, my, Someone my grandparents else owns it now. Yes, yes, but I, it is a wonderful wonderful memories and it was um it was a wonderful place to visit. And we visited a lot when I was growing up. And then when I was in college, I could visit. They were close to where I went to school. And so we had a very close relationship. So I was I was very, very fortunate.
0: So the book might be the answer for this question, too. But um, as an adult, uh, what's, where's your favorite place to go?
1: No, it's a totally different answer. Uh, I I mean, now when I think about if I'm like going to go on vacation, I mean, I have places I love. I love going to Wyoming to this retreat center every year. But I would say my number one place would be um, clear water where I can snorkel. And, and here's why. You can't take your phone snorkeling with you. You can't um, have a, anything that can distract you. When you're snorkeling, you are just in the water and there is nothing Else. And so it's it's the one place where everything else goes away and you are completely present. And I love that.
0: When I go snorkeling, I take a GoPro Hero 10 with a chest <laughs> mount and a 5.7K five, uh, 5. video. Um, so it's a lot to worry about. So I don't know about that.
1: But I don't do that. It's also why, and, and, and I haven't been snorkeling in years. I just, that's when I think about sort of that happy place, that's where I'm very, very focused. And so I love that.
0: So when you were little, uh, where did you grow up?
1: Charleston, South Carolina. Was it nice? It was wonderful. Um, When I was four years old, we moved about two miles away from the house where I was, well, I wasn't born in the house, but the house I was born into. Um, We moved to a house my parents built, and it was on the water, on Charleston Harbor. So I grew up every morning waking up and seeing Charleston Harbor. My first job was going down on the end of the dock, and I'd go crabbing all day and catch about a bushel of crabs and then go sell them. Um, I learned how to use a cast net with my grandfather and cast for shrimp. Um, we had, when we were in in our teenage years, we had a little boat we could push in and get out on the water or go sailing. So, um, I loved that.
0: You probably felt, I was going to ask if you grew up like in, felt like you were in the city in Charleston or kind of outside, but it seems like that would feel like you were in the outskirts?
1: Yes, we were on the outskirts. We were on James Island. Um, so not immediately downtown. You looked at downtown, but um, but no. And when I was really little, eventually a subdivision built up around us. But when we moved there, it was a long dirt road. And so um, the most magical days would be when the road grader would come down and you'd get the clumps of dirt that would stick together and you could build things and you could explore in the woods all day. I mean, it was really, um, I loved I loved that part of it.
0: So as, after you grew up there, then uh, when you went off to college and seminary, did you do college and seminary? Are they the same thing? Ooh, what,
1: that's a great question. What's going on? Well, college is first. So to go to seminary in the Presbyterian Church, you have to have a college degree. So I went to Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. It's a women's college, um, a really amazing place, just a really wonderful school. It's really where my eyes were opened and... Um, I had professors who loved me and were who thought I was who thought I was smart and so they pushed me and challenged me and and I learned to love learning. Um, it's where I saw a woman preach for the first time and I'd thought about seminary much earlier but that was where it sort of made sense and I started putting a plan together and then I went straight to seminary after college. A lot of people take some time off or they'll have jobs. Um, I wanted to go on through because I knew this was my and I went to Union Theological Seminary in New York City.
0: Whoa, I've never been to New York City. Oh. Is that what neighborhood is that place in?
1: Um, Upper Upper West Side, so it's just north of Columbia University.
0: I don't understand New York at all. (laughs) I have friends from Long Island, Yeah, and I think that's like, a neighborhood but they're like no that's like
1: a big whole other place. place and they're
0: like what town in Long Island and I'm like wait what like I thought that was the town so
1: well here's what's cool I didn't know anything about New York City either I mean I'd been a couple of times but I went because that's the professors that were teaching it was it was just an amazing school but I went kind of terrified of I was New gonna York say
0: city. I'm terrified right now as a 41 year old adult mm-hmm. in 2022 to go to New York City for some reason yeah like I, I lived in Seattle big city I love Washington DC mm-hmm. But for some reason, I'm scared to go to New York.
1: Oh, well, well that's the neat thing. is, And I needed to grow up. I'd gone straight from college. So it was a wonderful experience because I lived and went to school on the Upper Upper West Side. I joined a church and worked down in the village. So I really spent time all over the city. And I went scared of it. And I would say it took me a good year to settle in. But then I loved the city. I mean, it was – I mean, I just loved it, all the different things. And I loved walking it. I loved walking the city and seeing people and seeing things. Um, it, was, it was an amazing experience.
0: When you arrived there at seminary, to me, seminary seems like you all have scarves on like Harry Potter, and <laughs> it's like Hogwarts. And uh, what is it like?
1: OK, well, visually, true confession, the seminary does look like Hogwarts. Um, if you've seen, um, it's in Law and Order all the time. It's in The Marvelous Ms. Maisel. When, he's, when the dad is teaching at, at Columbia University, they film that at Union Theological Seminary. So the hallways, you have these staircases. I had this apartment that looked over the green, and I had a little cubby where I could sit and watch everything. I could watch it snow, just like Harry does on Christmas morning. Um, the student body, no. I mean, that's that's not like Hogwarts at all. But it was, I mean, you go to worship every day. And it's because at school, you have student groups that are doing worship. So you have all of these different experiences that really challenge you and push you. Professors who um, present very different ideas. I mean, it's really this expansive, you know, singing hymns you never sung. Because I grew up going to one Presbyterian church, and I had no idea how big the world was. I had no idea how big God was.
0: What? Uh, so you go to classes in seminary? Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. was your? Was there any super interesting named classes?
1: Um, well, I took a lot of feminist and womanist theology because that was a particular interest of mine. But, um, but I'll say the classes that I use the most. That, like, if I could go back, I mean, I would love to go back to seminary and just start all over and do it all over again because I would learned. I'd go to the same classes and have a whole different perspective, but I would say the ones that I use the most are the Bible classes, um, my Old Testament, my Hebrew Bible, my New Testament, because you have to learn Greek and you have to learn Hebrew, and and that's a requirement for ordination. So, um, and I and full confession, I could not translate off the top of my head a passage of Hebrew right now, but I know to look up things and. I am constantly amazed at how much broader the Bible is than most of us, myself included, think that it's it. it and and we're still learning things. And I would say it just it it challenged my assumptions in ways that I know I'm always still learning, and that God still speaks through the Scripture.
0: That's a perfect segue to what's your favorite book of the Bible, if you oh. if you had to choose one. That's, you, to, you don't have to choose, but I know. you do in this interview.
1: I would say I like the book of Acts, um, which is Luke-Acts are kind of a combo deal. Um, it's written by the same person, but Acts is sort of where the church gets started. And I love that because they are flawed people and human people. Um, but I mean, I like, I don't know. thats That's and a then, hard one.
0: And then related is, is there a favorite verse that you like? You don't have to have it memorized. I was just curious. Um, Where should we go to find your favorite verse?
1: Book of Psalms. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, um, which is something my grandfather said all the time. And and I love it. I love it because it's it's a reminder. When you say it, it it's 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 not a Pollyanna kind of verse. It's, it's a determined verse. It's a, and when I'm having a good day, it's easy to rejoice and give thanks. But when it's not a good day, to remind myself of those words and to know that there is much for which I can be grateful and that I am blessed to be loved by God. So it's a stubborn, persistent, sometimes obstinate verse that it has. It, it puts meat on the bones.
0: A good, it's a connection because you use that to open services a lot. That's and
1: nice. it always makes me think of my grandfather. In the same way, like, um, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. That was on the bulletin of the church where I grew up. And so, you know, these verses, they they have context. And so that's my context. But for everyone, some of these verses, they say more than just words on a page.
0: What's your favorite time of the year liturgically? Is that the right word? Yes. Oh, I'm so proud I used that. Yeah,
1: that well done. Um, Advent. And I love that. Advent. Advent is, um, I like the time. I mean, I see it as a time of repentance and confession, um, particularly because it's such a busy time. It's a time to really set things aside. And I have a little card I keep in my wallet. Like, is this helping me prepare to welcome Jesus? Like, should I be doing this? Is this helping me prepare to welcome Jesus?
0: Here at First Prez, I asked um, Tommy this question. I'm not sure if I asked Mar this question, but I am in every nook and cranny of this church grounds trying to get video, just trying to get interesting angles on the church and just pictures and video. And so it made me think um, to ask Tommy and to now ask you, what is your favorite uh, place on the church grounds? Like, do you have a favorite place to go or somewhere you've stood and you feel good?
1: Um, I like the sanctuary. I know that that seems like an easy answer. But I like going in there and praying and being aware of the generations who have come before the people um, that I stand in a line that there were people here before me, there'll be people here after me. So I love the prayers in that place. I also love my office. Um, this is I mean, I, this is a great office, but, and what I particularly love are the windows that look out, and I can see people walking by. I can see people walking their dogs out on the street, the squirrels, the birds. There's a lizard that I haven't seen much this winter, but it comes and sits on the railing, and we, we sometimes have a little chat. There's a cat, a stray cat, that sort of wanders by every few days. So I love being able to watch what's happening out there.
0: Well... Well, thank you. Thank you for the interview. I know for people in our community, it's, it's cool to hear more about the people who we see up in front of the congregation every week. And uh, yeah, let's get to the sermon.
1: Thanks, Paul Scott. I am grateful for you. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, Through your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to your transforming word in Scripture, that we may experience anew the height and depth and breadth of your love and be inspired to live as faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. We ask it in your name. Amen. Our scripture reading for today comes from the Gospel of Luke the sixth chapter starting with the 27th verse but I say to you that listen love your enemies do good to those who hate you bless those who curse you pray for those who abuse you if anyone strikes you on the cheek offer the other also and from anyone who takes away your coat do not withhold even your shirt give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same." If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lead, lend to sinners to receive much again. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful. Just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put back into your lap, and for the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Many years ago, in fact, well more than 25 years ago, when I was still a student in seminary, I was invited to preach in a small congregation in upstate New York. This invitation, came with a weekend at a house in upstate New York with my host. It was a wonderful weekend filled with good food and laughing friends, but it also expected a sermon from me for her wonderful small congregation. So I prepared that sermon diligently. I wanted to say everything there was to say about the scripture passage I had been assigned. I wanted to do well. And when it was done, when the sermon was over, my host gave me the very last piece of pie for my dessert at lunch, and then shared with me a piece of advice that I have always remembered. She told me, everything you said today was good, Anna, but remember, you don't have to share everything that you know in a single sermon. You should save something for later. I thought of that advice as I approached this text from Luke for this week because there are easily a baker's dozen worth of sermons in these few verses. Love your enemies. Love those who are not good to you. Jesus is telling us we have to go much further than the golden rule here. We need to take a step higher. There is a whole sermon in these verses about how Jesus is not condoning violence here. Jesus is not telling us that it is faithful to endure abuse. If statistics are correct, there are people within the sound of my voice who are in relationships that are not healthy, that are violent. And we, as a church, need to be clear that abuse is not love, and Jesus does not condone staying in abusive situations. So there's a whole sermon about that in these verses. There's a sermon in this idea that we should lend without expecting anything in return. Just two weeks ago, we heard from the Reverend Catherine Campbell as she talked a little bit about Habitat for Humanity. And one of the things that has always struck me about Habitat is that most of the mortgages on their homes are offered at zero percent interest. They loan without expecting anything in return. Did you also know that there are colleges, there are many colleges out there, Davidson College being one of them, that guarantee that if a student is accepted to their school, they will be able to graduate debt-free. They will not allow any loans. They will make sure that any tuition shortages can be made up with grants or work studies or scholarships so that students should graduate from undergraduate college without any debt. There are about a baker's dozen worth of sermons in these verses. They could all be full length sermons, these topics. But none of those things are the things that really fixated, that really focused me this week. What I really focused on was what we hear in verse 37 Do not judge, and you will not be judged. This, I believe, is one of the most frequently quoted Bible verses in any internet argument that faith comes up in. I don't have scientific research to back that up, mind you, but it seems like as soon as faith is brought into an argument, someone is going to say, hey, I thought your faith tells you you're not supposed to judge. Well, here's one place where that is referenced, but I don't think it means what most of us think that it means because judging is a part of life, and it's even a part of a faithful life. Several years ago, I was called for jury duty. Ministers are never selected, I was told. Don't worry, you won't be asked to serve, I was told. And I'll confess, while I wasn't thrilled about the possibility of losing a work week to a week sitting in a courtroom, I consider jury duty to be an honor. It's a privilege to be asked to serve in that way. So, when I was the last juror selected for this trial and immediately elected the foreperson of the jury, I'll confess, I thought it was kind of cool at first. But then the actual trial started. The gentleman before us had been accused of stealing, and across three days of testimony, we heard evidence against him. We also heard his lawyer's attempts to explain it. The evidence, the story that unfolded, was quite compelling, but we also knew that this would be the defendant's third strike, and if he were convicted, it would be significant jail time. We heard the evidence, we considered the evidence, and we deliberated as a jury. It was then my responsibility to come back into that courtroom and declare that the man standing in front of us was, beyond a reasonable doubt, guilty. It was my responsibility to judge him. And I'll tell you that in that moment, serving on a jury no longer felt like an honor. It was hard, no matter how true I felt the verdict to be. This man's life, due to his own actions, it was over. But it was my job that day to judge, to judge the evidence, and ultimately to judge this man's actions. Judging is a part of what we do in life. We judge. We judge our choices. We judge which candidate is going to receive our vote. We judge our options for how we do our jobs, the choices about what we do with our time. We judge the actions of our children, and try to determine if ways they are behaving and living will help or hinder their life, how they will grow up to be faithful or happy. We make judgments every day that help us to choose better and faithful paths. We make judgments all the time. It's how we move forward. And we're not alone. Jesus judged. Should the woman be stoned to death for being caught in the act of adultery, He judged that she shouldn't. Did the priest and the Levite who passed by the man who was lying close to death in the middle of the road, did they do the right thing by passing by him? No, in Jesus' parable, they are judged for doing that. There's even a whole section of the Hebrew Bible that is dedicated to the judges who were in charge of ordering society. Judging is a part of life, and it can be an important one. Sometimes when we judge that something is an injustice, it is that judgment that helps us to know how to focus that appropriate righteous anger to bring things into focus, to make things more faithful, to work for change that is holy and good. We need to make judgments so that we can rage against what is wrong, We need to make judgments so that we can know when something is good and we can celebrate it. Judgments can help us work towards the kingdom of God that God has promised. Judgment can help us nurture relationships that nurture ourselves and the world in which we live. I think about the words from Nina Simone that I've shared maybe before. You've got to learn to leave the table when love's no longer being served. How do you know when love is no longer being served? Judgment. You make a judgment about that. So, judgment. How do we know? How do we know when what we're doing is faithful and right kind of judging and when it's the kind of judgment that Jesus says we should really leave it alone? Because Jesus did say here, do not judge and you will not be judged. Well, it's important in understanding this phrase to look at the context. Judgment is not singled out here. It's not the only thing Jesus talks about. It's a progression. It's a progression that starts with the golden rule and then expands to tell us more about how God wants us to live. Pastor Brian Stoffergen explains it in this way. The main verbs in this section are present tense imperatives. These carry the idea of continuous or repeated actions. Thus, we can understand the prohibitions as don't continue to judge, don't keep on judging, don't continue to condemn, or keep on condemning. And we can understand the positive commands in the same way. Keep on forgiving, continue to give. And all of this section goes back to the golden rule. We are to treat others as we want them to treat us, and they will treat us that way. When we are forgiving and giving, rather than judging and condemning, others will treat us in the same way. So that's a little piece of that context. But that's not all that's being referenced here. The idea of judgment here really isn't primarily referring to the kind of judgments that most of us will engage in each and every day as a way to live a faithful life. There is the context here that Jesus is speaking about a more ultimate judgment, about the final judgment, the ultimate judgment of God, the judgment of God, the judgment of the end of days, the judgment that comes when the one who created us looks at our lives and places it in the balance. And when it comes to that level of judgment, we are absolutely not to judge. That is a clear case Jesus is making, because time and again The Bible tells us that God is the only one who can make those judgments. That there are people and places about which God cares that we don't even know. That there is mercy that we cannot fully comprehend. And that we are not God. We cannot be God in any place, in any time, in any moment. So when it comes to that kind of judgment, Jesus tells us it's hands off. No matter how much we might want to agree or feel righteous about proclaiming that there is a special place in hell for, and insert your own thought there, Jesus says it's not yours to know. It's not yours to know. It's not ours to know. This isn't just what we learn in the Bible. It's also a core part of our theology. In many places in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin writes that it is not our place to know or think we know who God saves and who God has chosen not to save, that we must treat people as if each and every one is God's most chosen elect. Calvin writes it in many places, but most succinctly in Volume 4, where he says, We are not bidden to distinguish between reprobate and elect. That is for God alone, not for us to do. Our task is to treat each and every person as God's own elect. Judge not, another author writes, is not then an injunction to spineless acceptance, but a caution against peremptory legalisms that leave no space for acts of compassion or witness. Let me repeat that. That's a pretty dense sentence. Judge not is not then an injunction to spineless acceptance, but a caution against preemptory legalisms that leave no space for acts of compassion and witness. What does that mean? Well, I heard a story the other day that fleshes it out. The story of a pastor who was sent to serve a church in a rural part of the country. He writes... The denominational official who sent me out neglected to mention that the church had been torn apart by conflict. About half of the members had left. All of 25 years old at the time, I had no idea how to handle the kind of pain I discovered in the congregation I had been called to serve. I preached my best, I visited folks in their homes, I visited people who stayed in the church, and I visited people who had left. I loved the people who told me I talked funny and looked a little Yankee soldier in my blue suit coat, and I found grace in that small rural town. But then the anonymous notes and phone calls began. He says, they were never directly threatening, but they were unsettling. Someone who knew me very well and was a part of the congregation was clearly writing the letters. On the phone calls, someone would stay on the line, saying nothing. So, he says, I prayed, I studied the letters, and I looked for a pattern. At one point, I decided that I had figured out the source. I had figured out the source, and it was one of the wives of one of the farmers. It was a wife of one of the farmers in the congregation. During the conflict in the church, her husband had stopped attending worship, but Betty and her three adolescent children continued to come. She and one daughter taught a Sunday school class. The family lived in a simple white frame farmhouse at the end of a gravel road. Making ends meet for them, I thought, must be a struggle. But I studied the handwriting. I considered the circumstances and I knew it was her. So I called Betty and asked if I could come and visit. It was a warm summer day when I knocked on the back door of the farmhouse. We sat at the kitchen table. We made small talk for a few minutes and then I told Betty that I knew that she had been making the anonymous phone calls and writing the anonymous letters. I knew. He says there are times when you suddenly see something you have missed. As the words came out of my mouth, I saw another piece of the puzzle and all of a sudden I realized I was wrong. It was impossible for Betty to have been the caller and the letter writer but I had already spoken. My words of accusation had been uttered. And those words sat there on the kitchen table between us. I braced myself for a storm to break over my head. I waited for Betty to promise that she and her family would never again darken the doors of a church with such a foolish young pastor. But as time passed, I saw there was no storm. Betty looked at me across the table, and I saw disappointment in her eyes. No, Pastor, she said quietly. I didn't make those phone calls or write those letters. I can't remember if I said anything, he writes. All I remember was sitting there in the quiet of her kitchen until Betty finally spoke and said, Pastor, would you like some sweet tea? Yes, ma'am, I said. Betty poured me a glass of sweet tea and I remember to this day, the sound of the ice cubes falling into the glass. Betty sat there with me and we drank the tea. We talked about family and the farm, the weather and church, and when the tea was gone, she let me pray. She walked me to the door, shook my hand, and told me she would see me on Sunday. Pastor Mark concludes that now when I think of grace, I always think of sweet tea and the way the disciples must have associated grace with bread and fish, remembering the morning the risen Christ served them breakfast on the beach, even though they had all slipped away when he needed them the most. Sweet tea reminds me of an afternoon when grace came to me unexpectedly, and a saint held on to me, despite my foolishness. Judge not does not mean we cannot distinguish between right and wrong and make those kinds of judgments. It does not mean we cannot distinguish between what is right and what is wrong, from the obvious things like stealing and lying to the less pinnable down things, like choices about time and generosity. Judge not means letting go of the idea that we know who is loved Who is loved in God's eyes? Who is worthy of love? And who is not? It means this, and it means more of letting go, because it also means seeing one another through the eyes of God. It means not only knowing that God loves others, it means that we are called to see one another with that same love, while at the same time knowing that when we fall short, which we do, God's love and grace is there like sweet tea, love that does not abandon us, no matter how right, no matter how wrong we might be. So thanks be to our God for this. Thanks be to our God for this. Amen. go out into the world in peace have courage hold on to what is good return no one evil for evil strengthen the faint-hearted support the weak help the suffering honor all people love and serve god and may the god of hope fill us with such joy and peace in believing that we abound in hope by the power of the holy spirit Alleluia. amen Thank mm-hmm.